The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Yes, we do. From the NASDAQ, as always, this is Fast Money. I'm Brian Sullivan. Welcome, everybody. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Guy Adami are here, along with Gina Sanchez, CEO of Chantico Global. Good to see you, Gina, again. Tonight, investors on edge. The coronavirus spread. Stocks tumbling for the fifth straight day. We're going to break down what you should be doing with your money in the days, weeks, months, and maybe years ahead. Plus, Important new comments about the virus from two major travel companies. What they said ahead, both stocks are lower. And you are looking at a live shot from the White House. And we show that to you because in about 90 minutes, expected around 6.30 Eastern time, the president will hold a news conference on the outbreak. We will bring it to you live as soon as it begins. Of course, we have a special markets and turmoil and a coronavirus outbreak all joined in one tonight from 6 to 8, hosted by the great Tyler Matheson. In the meantime, we're going to get to the macro markets, but we want to begin with breaking news that came out a few minutes ago on one of the biggest companies in the world, Microsoft, warning its Windows unit will miss guidance for the quarter because of what else? Concerns about the virus. This is the latest company to cut guidance due to the outbreak. Microsoft shares down about 1.3% in the aftermarket. I would imagine, Guy Adami, that we had a few, United and others. We will probably have a couple hundred more of these is my guess. Yeah, you have to believe that. I mean, MasterCard obviously was a huge one as well. And listen, Microsoft on January 29th gave guidance, and this was one of the things. Personal computing, I think, is probably, I don't know, 25 to 28% of their overall revenue. There you go. So, and, and with that right. said, they're not, going to be able to, they're not going to be able to give guidance, which is fine in this environment. Ask yourself this, though. Where should the stock trade down to? And we've said this for a while. and We've actually said it since February 11th or so when they reported, around when they reported, the stock traded up to 190 and a half, reversed that day on huge volume. 160 is your level. People now look at Microsoft on valuation and say, hey, wait a second, maybe at 28, 29 times next year's earnings, it doesn't make a lot of sense here. And, and so more personal computing, as Guy said, 36%, 30% of their operating uh, profit. And, and so uh, for a stock that, that also was the beneficiary of passive flows, this is the other thing that we talk about with Apple and Microsoft, which is that they make up more than 23% of the, triple, of the NASDAQ 100. So uh, if you're looking for just the market effect also of what Microsoft does, it changes sentiment, but it also changes the technicals a little bit when you actually see um, uh, analysts if they have to downgrade, but obviously as you start to see investors flow out. So uh, as we talked about, we, we really it's, there's very little reason for a C-suite uh, member to be saying anything but caution right now. And, and that's really the case. We, we all sat around here and said Microsoft's doing everything right and that the multiple's expanding. And in a market where multiple expansion is what it's about, this was the catalyst we didn't expect. Right, and I think Microsoft also kind of, if you look at what this highlights, it highlights the fact that that there's more, you have to follow the whole chain all the way down. Microsoft is going to miss because HP is not going to update as quickly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, meaning that this, this starts in China and this continues to trickle all the way down. So you have to remember everything that's downstream from what's happening. Sort of the butterfly effect in Absolutely. some ways, right? You've got to watch when a big company says something Watch the companies in that halo, Karen. Yeah, but let, let's just look. Kudos to you for calling out that day, that top and reversal that day. But one thing important to note about Microsoft's release today, they did say that we are seeing strong demand. 
the uh, getting production came getting production back run, uh, up and running came more slowly than they thought. So it's really a supply problem rather than a demand problem. I would much rather see a supply supply problem because I believe they'll get those sales. And, and I later. get it. And I get it. And in no way are we making light of the last three days. So as the great guy, Dami says, don't at us on this. But we do have to take a step back, take a deep breath and remember. Microsoft, even with the after-hours drop, still up 50% in 12 months. And I think Karen's point is exactly right. Yes, they have big demand. In fact, if you see where they've been getting that demand, it's been from their cloud computing stack. So basically building out their stack. Azure. Azure, exactly. The Azure product is massive, and I think you're going to continue to see demand on that. And that demand doesn't go away because of this. That demand becomes pent up. But again, you led the show with Microsoft is the third or fourth of maybe potentially... 100 companies. I can't speak to 100, but I'll tell you, it's going to be at least a few dozen more. And again, justifiably so. I think the key to this whole last couple weeks, my opinion quickly, was the weekend when Apple said, hey, guess what? Things aren't going to be, you know, we're having a problem here. The market sold off on that Monday. I think Apple was down maybe four or five dollars, which is meaningless in terms of where it is. And the next day it was making all time highs. The point being, the market didn't care about anything. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, magically, the market's starting to so, care. So just before you get to the macro markets, Tim, I mean, I'll go this far. If you're a CFO, CEO, wouldn't it be smarter to come out and yeah. cut guidance? Because you don't know what's going to happen. I would almost argue, and tell me if this is wrong, it's foolish not to give yourself a pass because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, or next month. Again, it's all relative to both your guidance, but it's also relative to your peer group. And if that's what's going on within your peer group uh, and there are these dynamics within the sector, it, why not? I'm not, I'm not sure that the, you're going to be uh, essentially encouraging folks to get out there and do that. But again, back to a Microsoft, I, I think the most important thing is how this embodied uh, not only just fund flows, uh, but sentiment for a market. And then when you consider that this stock hasn't traded below the 50-day, its own 50-day moving average since Jan of 2019, this is a stock that really has been on a one-way trip. It's still up 7% year-to-date. Uh, you still have analysts that probably were caught on the wrong side of upgrading this thing into those highs. These are all things that I, I don't think change overnight. Uh, I think Microsoft is the same great company it was two weeks ago. Uh, but no one was paying attention to the valuation then. And I think if you look at the technicals on the chart and if you look at where it's trading and where it could, it could still go to, um, I don't think you have to get in there and say that today's the day I, I, I'm any, bottom fishing. Karen, any solace, it is only down 1.3. I know it's fallen on Monday and Tuesday. I get it. But only any solace, it's only down a percent right now yeah, on a guidance I think there cut. should be. Right. On a, yeah, right. I think there should be. I think you're right, though, to the broader point of should everybody do it. I think everybody does get a free pass. I don't know any company that's going to say, no, we had no effect whatsoever from coronavirus. Somebody like Zoom and Clorox, they'll probably, you know, be the beneficiaries of coronavirus, but everybody will be affected. But I think the market's sort of looking through that, and I do think you're going to get a free pass if it makes sense, the magnitude of your miss and what your business is. How you were affected by coronavirus. Let's broaden this out and turn now to the wild ride that was Wall Street on a Wednesday. We started hopeful that the worst might be over. The Dow was up 460 at one point. And then what else? More coronavirus headlines out of Germany, Brazil and a fear in Long Island. A quick plunge for stocks down nearly 200 at one point. A swing of more than 650 points today. 22 Dow stocks fell. 
led by a nearly 4% drop in Disney. Of course, a sudden CEO changed last night. And Exxon and Chevron Dow components slammed again as oil closed under 49 bucks a barrel. Guy Adami, we thought, I guess some thought this morning when the markets opened, we had a bit of a rally, maybe this would be the day. We turned it around. What does that intraday reversal tell you, if anything? Yeah, it's not particularly good. We talked yesterday about the potential for today being the bounce back day. And for a few hours this morning, it looked exactly that. I could make an argument and we can have a debate that today might be the worst day out of the last three, given the huge reversal we saw to the downside on the back of a 1,900-point move in the Dow. I think that's speaking volumes. The one thing that was interesting most of the day, the VIX really never gave it back. And the VIX was hanging in there, which should have been a telltale sign. Bonds didn't really sell off that heavy, and gold had a bid. So I think today... Again, it's, it's a not a great day if you're bullish. Six months ago, this day would have closed on the highs and we would build on it again tomorrow. What's, what's, you have to think about where we've come from, though. I mean, first of all, we've had excessive moves by, by any measure. So, again, if you look at the fixed income market, this, this looks a lot like the move uh, into Brexit back in 2016. You, you've had uh, essentially north of a 2.5% a uh, north of a two and a half standard deviation move. And if you think about uh, just where the, the, the market really has then reacted over the last couple of days, um, I, I think that's that that's where we are. I, I don't think that the market has to go down in a straight line. Mm-hmm. But but to, to, to look at relative strength indicators and things that give you the sense of the momentum of what has happened, we're again back to a level in August we were at. And then before that, it takes you back to that first quarter of 2018. Yeah, we talked about it the other night on the special with Dan and, and Josh Brown saying that that failed rallies might be worse, to your point, than just falling. Gina, what do we want to see? Do we want to see a, another 1,000-point down day? Do we want to see a day where it's 15 to 1, decliners to advancers? What do we need to know to kind of know that the flush has occurred? Well, look, I think you right now the market is going to continue to be sporadic because we still don't know what we're dealing with. So honestly, it's not about looking for how many people get flushed out of the market as much as we need to see some signs that either this is contained or that we know that there is a line in the sand and we don't yet have a line in the sand. And I don't see how you can say a thousand flushed is going to draw a line in the sand. We still don't know. So Scott Miner called into Closing Bell a few minutes ago. He's on this program, I think it was last week or two weeks ago. He thought, Karen, that markets could fall another 15 to 20 percent stocks if we see more headlines. Is that extreme or do you agree? That sounds extreme to me, actually. I mean, of course, it, you know, if we have a terrible outbreak here and, you know, hundreds of thousands of cases, which I don't I, I'm not saying that. Should happen. I think that. The, I, th- I do think a thousand kind of point flush would be enough to bring people into the markets. I think the more, this would bottom before the end of the coronavirus right. pandemic. But I think where Minard is coming from, he's coming from the idea that if we take off some of the excessive valuations, there are some really strong yes, there are some really expensive in the market. Right? And so right. if you actually pull some of those off the table and get us back to more reasonable valuations, you actually can have a pretty big drop before you're there. Okay, let's bring another voice into this conversation here, talk more about the impact on your money and investments. Joining us now is Joe Zeidel. He is Blackstone's chief investment strategist, and uh, he has been on the mark about this, I, I think, probably unfortunately, with all due respect on that, is now the time right now for our viewers to buy stocks. No, I think we're going to see more downside volatility, unfortunately. And I think, you know, kind of what's happening here is investors are struggling with pricing in risk versus uncertainty. And they're two very different animals. And, you know, if you think about the idea of pricing and risk, 
when you've got risk, you have some known outcomes and you can assign probabilities to those outcomes and you can start discounting them. Right. The coronavirus was known to the markets as uh, early as like late December. And yet markets performed pretty well because they viewed it as a risk. They could estimate probabilities of China GDP, of supply chains, etc. But that all changed last week when the coronavirus spread to, you know, 28 or 29 different countries. Now investors are, are dealing with how do we price in uncertainty? We don't know what the range of outcomes are at this point, so we can't even begin to discount and, and them. So that drives more volatility. I'll give you an example, and, I, and not in no way am I trying to say, you know, toot the horn or whatever, but three weeks ago I went on the exchange or one o'clock show and I did some math. This is the early days, and I said oil demand could very easily fall two million barrels a day. And I got some nasty grams. People said you're extreme, fear monger, blah blah blah. That seems now to be the base case. Again, I'm not saying that I knew more than anybody else, just aggregating information. My point is is that what we thought and what we know then and now is very different. Couldn't that be the same thing now versus three weeks from now? Yeah, I think it is a fair point. And again, I would at this point, I would hesitate to endorse any estimates on you know, the impact that this might have on GDP growth or on companies. My own view is that we're going to face a series of mini rolling recessions, especially among those countries that are most <laughs> trade exposed. Right. Those are the countries, you know, your your Singapore's of the world, your South Korea's, the economy of Hong Kong, of course, Japan and even in Europe where Germany is very trade ex- exposed. Their net uh, trade as a percent of GDP is about 90 percent. Their growth was already weak. I think we'll see many rolling recessions, but these things are transitory. Global health emergencies, uh, the history on these is clear that they are transitory. It might take several more quarters from here, but I think it'll pass. From a company perspective, I think earnings estimates are still going to have to come down pretty substantially. The market, the street started the year looking for about 10% EPS growth for the year 2020. Now we might be down to about 7% EPS growth for the year. I think that's going to have to come way down. And there's two to three quarters where we're not going to be able to handicap this. I do think that there will be a period in which we are going to want to go and deploy capital and start thinking about high conviction or long-term themes. I just think we're going to see more volatility until then. Yeah, it's interesting, Joe. You were talking about a move to the downside in the fall. I mean, a, a lot of us were. Now we start, it's something to come to fruition. The coronavirus people are using that as an excuse. I get it. It's obviously part of it. But a lot of the reasons why we're lower are far more, I think, far-reaching than just this. So is this just the final straw and the fundamentals were sort of in place for this move all along? I think that's a really good point. You know, in September, the Fed completely reversed position with respect to its balance sheet. It started expanding its balance sheet in ways that we hadn't seen in a long time. And with that, you had a massive move up of risk assets, you know, in, in, in equities among disruptors who were up 50 percent from, you know, mid-September until, until uh, last week. You saw it across the range of fixed income where a lot of countries started moving back into negative yielding debt. And, you know, what you really had was this feedback loop that I'd never seen before in my career where good news was good for the markets, i.e. trade resolution with a phase one trade deal, news of Brexit. Then bad news was better, i.e. the U.S. preemptively taking out General Soleimani and a spike in oil prices. And then the worst news is human tragedy of coronavirus actually drove markets higher. Up until last Friday, in 35 trading days, you had 18 new highs in the S&P 500. Good news was good, bad news was better, and the worst news was the best. There was a famous economist named Herbert Stein who's famous for saying, Stein's law, that which cannot go on forever won't. Right. And I think that's an example of what we're seeing now. I don't know if the coronavirus is going to be enough to break this feedback loop because we're going to see central banks all around the world flooding the markets with liquidity. I think the Fed will have to cut at least twice, maybe three times. So my guess is we could be back in this feedback loop. But really, it's a story of liquidity. And I think that's been the main driver since the fall. 
So one of the points you made just a minute ago was this idea that this, once it flushes itself out, we should actually see a recovery from this. And if you look at sort of studies of global pandemics, and we don't have that many to study, but St. Louis Fed actually did a study of the Spanish flu. And basically they said after about six months of pain, you saw this boost in productivity across the, the, you know, across the economy. And the economic impacts were actually quite positive 12 mm-hmm. months and 18 months out. The problem that we have here is we have these massive valuations. And to Guy's point, mm. I think a lot of the the underlying fragility of the economy is really starting to flush itself out. How do you play that, sort of knowing that the economy might suffer for six months and then get better, but we are at such valuations? Yeah, I think you raise a great point. And, and the idea and the way I've always thought about this is the trends that will go into a global health emergency are going to be the trends coming out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, these things are, 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 are awful. Our sympathies with everybody who's been impacted here. But from an economic perspective and even a company perspective, the trends going in are going to be trends coming out. So I think the big question will be what are the trends that we're looking at you know six months or a year from now or two years from now we're looking at a global economy that was already suffering from diminishing returns of debt you know the last decade produced record high debt record low interest yeah. rates mm-hmm. and ever-increasing uh, multiples I don't know that we repeat that I think it's going to be a lower return environment it's going to require higher conviction investing Joe Zeidel Blackstone Joe pleasure thank you very much so Tim I guess the question is this following up on that when this is over, we don't know when that is, but let's hope it's sooner than later. Do stocks just resume their upward momentum that they were on for three years, four years before well, this? So we have to balance the two forces that we've just talked about, which is that, that you had a, a immature and fragile recovery uh, that was you know, something we were questioning recession uh, certainly six to nine months ago. And so if I think about uh, the market right now, yes, I think we want certainty. Joe talked about the lack thereof, and, and that's something that the market can't handicap. Um, I do think we're still going to have the Fed that is going to be throwing everything they can. There's going to be talk of fiscal, and they're certainly going to get fiscal around the world. Um, and you're going to get to a place where at some point valuations do matter, and valuations in a zero-rate environment are, are going to be more compelling uh, faster than they might have been otherwise. So, again, back to the market. Yeah. You want to look at where we actually have taken out this last excess Fed run. It takes you back to basically the 200-day. takes you down to about either 30, 35 on the S&P, or if you want to get back to essentially what was the highs of Jan 28 blow off top 2018, or actually where we got to uh, in the fall before we took off on that run, it's around 2,900 on the S&P. And then I think you have people able to make some choices on valuation and also where the market is actually taken off that last round of excess. I just think you I spot on the Fed. They were maybe out of the game when the market was doing better, I mean, which is only, what, 12 days ago, yeah. maybe? And uh, even with economic numbers being okay, they, did, they were out of the market, but they're not yeah. anymore. Without, and without, and, and the, by the one quick comment on this, I know we got to get to Meg, but I want to ask this because we had the Democratic debate last night. And without getting, poli- we're not going to get political. It's not what we do. But when people are throwing around numbers, you have to dive in. Is there any part of this which is related to the fact that there, there are people on stage that are very possibly going to be the next president, or at least in the running, that are suggesting we do away with certain industries and throw oil executives in jail? Yeah, 100%. I mean, we've, we've mentioned Bernie Sanders by name, so we can Literally say says it. we should send fossil fuel company CEOs to prison. And, it's, and what's interesting about that, when, he's, when he was doing very well, people took that as a positive because they're like Donald Trump is going to annihilate him in a general election. Now I think people are saying, you know what, maybe that's not a complete certainty. So maybe there is some of the Bernie Sanders factor in this. Yeah. All right, guys. 
Well, we do have that market flash right now on Gilead. Let's get it with Meg Terrell. Meg. Hey, Brian. Well, Gilead says it's starting two late-stage clinical trials of its experimental drug for the disease caused by the novel coronavirus, COVID-19. That is on top of trials that are already being run in China, where it says they expect data by April, and a new trial that's being run by the U.S. government. Uh, Now, they say they're going to run these trials in 1,000 patients, mainly in Asia, but also in other countries where there are high levels of diagnosed cases. And this will just give them more information about how well this drug works. And by the way, Brian, of course, this is the one drug the WHO said had the most promise for potentially treating this disease, up 3.6% for Gilead there after hours. Back to you. All right, Meg Terrell, Meg, thank you very much. Big news there for Gilead. Maybe big news for people all over the world that are suffering from the coronavirus or afraid of it. All right, we've got a lot more on the coronavirus, of course, and the impact on your money in the markets. And catch our CNBC special report tonight, Markets in Turmoil. It is, I believe, a special two-hour edition hosted by our friend Tyler Matheson. Jim Cramer will make an appearance, the entire gang. It's one you cannot afford to miss, especially with the markets the last couple of days. We're going to be back right after this on Fast Money. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome back. Bookings Holding and Marriott, both reporting their numbers after the bell. Stocks going in different directions. Let's find out what they said. We'll see Modi back at HQ. Seema. Hey, Brian, let's start with booking. Guidance was worse than expected. It sees revenue falling 3 to 7 percent in the first quarter, much of that due to an increase in cancellations in Asia, uh, pressure to its average daily rates. And with the coronavirus reaching Italy, the company is accounting for the possibility that travel will be disrupted in Europe. Now, booking holding CEO Glenn Fogel on the virus telling me that while this is certainly having an impact, the extent is hard to predict. The difference between what we saw happening six weeks ago, three weeks ago, and even over the last few days with new Outbreaks popping up outside of Asia illustrates the uncertainty. Howard Fogel on the call says he's optimistic about a recovery, saying this is not the first time it's faced an event like this, and that travel ultimately is fundamental to people's lives. However, it has raised a lot of questions about uh, how far this virus will extend, and that, of course, is pressuring shares of online travel operators, booking holding down nearly 19% so far this year, uh, Expedia down as well. Let's pivot to Marriott, though, uh, delivering mixed set of earnings, and it really cannot detail the financial impact of the virus. The call doesn't start till tomorrow morning, but CFO Lini Oberg telling me occupancies are currently quite depressed in greater China and are depressed to a lesser extent in the rest of Asia. We have yet to see a significant impact in other markets around the world yet, but the situation remains fluid. Now, worth noting, Marriott has 800 properties in Asia Pacific with roughly half in greater China. Uh, Lini also says so far in the first quarter, Brian, the U.S. is off to a solid start. It's also worth noting that travelers from greater China accounted for under a half a percent of Marriott's room nights in North America last year. So, you know, when you look at a company like Marriott with its size and scale being the world's largest hotel chain, worth noting that it still makes over half of its revenue here in the U.S. Now the question is, does the U.S. market remain strong? You're seeing the stock basically flat, slightly higher here in extended trade, but it is underperforming if you look at a year-to-date chart. Back to you. 
So let me get in there on bookings. You know, if you think about it, this is a case where the company, I think we, we'd had some in, we'd had Expedia, we digested uh, some of the other news. Think about MasterCard, who talked about cross-border travel. They talked about travel, as they warned. We've had United Airlines get out there. I, I know this sounds a, a little overly rosy, but I, I'm actually somewhat encouraged that that at least is where we are now. We all know it can get a lot worse, but those are numbers. Uh, I think people had already started to go down three to four uh, percent. They've gone down a little bit more. Again, they say somewhere in the middle of range uh, between minus three and a half and seven. Uh, I know J.P. Morgan was at minus four and a half percent in terms of the current trend. So 1650 on bookings, if you look at the chart, is a level where uh, this thing is held under different circumstances. Again, where they had low to mid-teens uh, hotel room booking growth in the year ahead. Let's see where we are. But uh, at some point, again, these are going to be opportunities in these stocks. I'm looking at that now. Opportun- no, I, they're going to be. But I, listen, in terms of Marriott, a couple of weeks ago, we were making an all-time high in a stock around 150. We actually talked about this stock because that a huge double top going back to, I think, 2018. Where can it trade from here? Well, I think it can trade down to the December 2018 lows, which is around 102. I mean, they have no idea what guidance is going to be good for them because they, they really shouldn't be. Why would you subject yourself to this stock in this environment? So although it's had a huge move to the downside, I think there's further room to the downside. All right. Well, for more on today's travel earnings and guidance, you can go over to CNBC.com. But we are not done here, not even close. Here's what else coming up on Fast. Stocks have been bruised and battered over the past week, but maybe not everyone got punished fairly. We go bottom fishing to find the names that are ready to pop. And later, what will be the bigger disruption for the markets? The coronavirus or the election? The answer may surprise you. We'll tell you what the options market says. That's all coming up when Fast Money returns. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Well, if you missed today's trading... You missed a lot. Optimism at the open sent the Dow up more than 400 at one point. Then more Corona heads hit. We lost 650 points, finally ending the day on the Dow, then 123 points. And NASDAQ did eke out a small gain. The Dow is now down over 7% in three days. But we've been told you're supposed to buy low, correct? So let's figure out if there's any value in the scrap heap of the beaten up stocks. And let's start with retail, Macy's, Under Armour, Gap, Capri Holdings, Kohl's, all more than 20% off their highs. Karen, any of those names appear attractive to you right now? Well, I am long Capri, which is Michael Kors and Jimmy Choo and Versace's. They always say if you go home long, it's the same as if you bought it right at the close. So I guess you could say I am a buyer. Unfortunately for them, they have 
Hong Kong exposure. They have Asia exposure. The other thing, which is really unfortunate to them, to improve their supply chain last year, they moved a lot of their manufacturing to Italy, which is probably not ideal at the moment. But I think ultimately that will pass. I, you know, I think they have a big buyback. I wouldn't be surprised if they were out there buying stock. But, you know, trade's terrible. It's been a painful one. Well, if you think about it, all those names, and maybe not Capri, and I think I'll, I'll leave it to Karen, who actually does a lot of work on this. Um, but if you talk about Macy's, you talk about Under Armour, um, not necessarily Kohl's, so maybe I'm, I'm backtracking my whole statement. But some of those are broken companies. And, and this is not the environment I think you go digging and dumpster diving. We were talking about dumpster diving when the market was at all-time highs, and you were looking for places where people were looking for underperformers. Kohl's, I think, has an environment here uh, where the stock has been extremely volatile. They're in a very competitive space where they're essentially competing on uh, on food prices with Walmart in a world that's overstored. So, again, I, I think of all the places where I think you've seen a sell-off related to this, this gets back to the core of true fundamentals. And, and I think with some of those names, those are not fundamentals independent of Chrome. Remember, there was so much optimism around Kohl's where they announced that Amazon partnership. You could yeah. turn stuff. And, boy, that faded away. All right. Well, speaking of the scrap heap, let's talk about oil and energy, shall we, everybody? Because crude crumbling again. We are now below 40 Actually, we're below 48 a barrel, including the after-hours move, off another 3%. And with that move, shares of every major oil and gas stock went down with it. Guys, I want you to look at that chart, okay? Mm. If you're driving, you're on the radio, imagine a chart that is 20 years that looks like an icicle on the far right side. ExxonMobil is now at its lowest level since 2005, below levels of the financial crisis. Of course, oil was higher then. Other names like Chevron, Devon, Diamondback, also in a bear market. Gina, you're from the capital of oil drilling, Los Angeles. Any value in any of these names? You really gave me the dog today because this is the dog of the entire market. And the fact is, is that the fundamentals for this entire sector are not great. Throw in a touch of coronavirus and you are talking about China falling and their, their demand falling. They are the single largest importer uh, of oil and the third largest importer of energy, uh, useful consumer of energy around the world. Right. So that's bad. IEA lowering the demand, their, their demand. So you have to think about whether or not you even want to own this sector. We don't love this sector. If you have to be yep. in this sector, the most defensive name is actually probably Exxon. Well, okay, so that chart was the XLE, not the price of oil, but oil was down to 48 and whatever change. Josh Brown made the point in the previous hour, Tim, ExxonMobil's dividend yield is almost 7%, highest since all the way back to, I don't know, the first Star Wars, the real one. <laughs> is there any value in buying it for the dividend only. Well, we, I, I'll speak for myself. I, I don't chase stocks for dividend yields because I think in most cases, those dividend yields are a function of adverse performance in the stock price that have taken them to like absurd levels, i.e. Macy's. Uh, in the case of Exxon, I think that dividend yield is, is very much intact, uh, unless, of course, the stock rallies. There's no question they're going to pay that dividend. Um, I, the other thing that these, these integrated oil companies were dealing with was before we were talking about coronavirus, we were talking about ESG. And apparently Bernie's going to throw these guys in jail. Well, you know, what? Um, from a flow perspective, this has been also a major headwind. I think ConocoPhillips and Chevron are two very well-run yeah. integrated oil companies that I would feel comfortable owning at these levels. It's interesting. Now, ExxonMobil, I get the 7% dividend. Their dividend is increasing for the wrong reasons, as we all understand that. And you can give up 7% in a day. So I'm with Tim on that one. And you haven't seen the flush yet. And 
forgetting about everything we talked about, the three letters we didn't mention is ESG is a huge existential risk, mm-hmm. and we've talked about that. But Schlumberger, if you're looking for a trade, and we talked about this in the fall, $30 was a huge double bottom. We said it's going to rally from there. It rallied basically 30% in a couple weeks. Now it's back below that. How do you trade that stock? A close above 30, you buy SLB again. It closed at 28.40 today. Yeah, services, CapEx budgets are coming down. By the way, these oil CEOs, you know, we're going to talk to a bunch of them in about a week and a half at a conference, which we hope still goes on. ExxonMobil, if you're out there, open invitation, have Darren Woods call in. I've called or emailed them every day. I don't know what they're doing. Anyway, uh, let's talk about technology. A bunch of names here, some tech stocks that are more than 20% guy off their highs. you got a big name, Cisco Systems, F5. Look at the Twitter, down 24%. I can't see what the far left one is. I think that's Xilinx. I'm getting old. Down 42% from its highs. Are you, Guy Adami? Keen vision, by the way, buying any of these stocks. So it's, I do. You know, I had that. You have evil that, eyes. I had that Lasix thing years and years ago. It works. Actually. Eagle Eye Cherry, good singer, by the way, also. Can you name one, a hit, song? One, one hit wonder. Keep going. Let's get me Twitter. I don't know. Listen, Twitter. Listen, I understand Xilinx has had a huge move to downside. It started moving long before this whole coronavirus thing. So maybe it gets interesting around this $85 level or so. But Twitter to me is the one that sticks out as we go into this election cycle. Yeah, I understand it's been a volatile stock. But, you know, here at 35 bucks, I think out of the names you just mentioned, TWTR is the most interesting. Okay. And lastly, some auto and auto related names Ford, GM, Advanced Auto Parts. And Harley-Davidson, again, I mean, listen, Tim, we're saying all these stocks are, you know, down 20%. Of course they are. Any of those names look attractive to you? Well, so autos coming into all of this uh, externality were, were really in a difficult place. And they're in a difficult place because of trade dynamics. There's certainly some, some secular issues going on in the sector. Um, GM is a name I'm long. It's a name that's done nothing for five years. It's a name that down near 31, it's at the bottom of a five-year range. It's a company with a great balance sheet. So if we're, you know, if we're anywhere near getting a slower economy moving into a credit, you know, that might be the next move for a lot of companies. I think Ford is one you've got to be careful about. GM is not. Um, Moody's was out today saying auto production globally is going to be down about 2.5% this year. Some of that's a function of corona. Um, everything we've heard from people like VW is supply. Talk about supply chain and tech. Supply chain and auto, this is a big deal. Yeah. Um, so you know, look at the underperformance here. This is an opportunity. Uh, maybe it's not tomorrow, um, but you know, I do like GM here. Yeah, no, I'm going to I'm going to back you up on that. I actually have the same views and partially it's it's that they're down at option value. So this is a good value for GM. But also, if you look at sort of the the supply chain issues, I mean, you literally have manufacturing facilities idling and people waiting for things like car doors and uh, other parts. Mm-hmm. So that's a really important component. Karen. I would echo that I'm long GM, but the one name up there that I think really faces an existential crisis is Harley Davidson. Right. Revenues just I just think that market hog. might be hog. Might yep. be ticker yeah, hog. hog has been a dog. And by the way, quick trivia. I was looking at California auto dealers data from last just, year the other night because, because I have no, I have no life. I have no life. Do. What was the third most registered car? What model? What company and model? 68 in California GTO. You know what it was? Tesla Model 3. Number three overall registered car. In California behind, I think, the Accord and the Camry. That's pretty unbelievable. All right, coming up, 
the one sector that is a bright spot for the market and maybe the entire American economy. What it is coming up. And a reminder, the president set to hold a news conference on the coronavirus outbreak in just under an hour from now, expected at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time. And we have full coverage in a special report. Tyler Matheson, Jim Cramer, and all of our star reporters in a CNBC Special Markets and Turmoil report, 6 to 8 p.m. tonight. You cannot afford to miss that, but we're back right after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Home, of course, is where the heart is. And recently, it's also where the money is. New home sales surging to their highest levels in nearly 13 years. And while the home builders have fallen in recent days, along, of course, with pretty much every single stock except for Clorox and a couple of others, the group is still up 16% over the past year. So, Gina, housing, a big opportunity or overdone. So I think it's an interesting opportunity. There's a couple of things happening right now in the housing market. If you look, for example, at inventories, inventories are really tight, right? So you're having a really hard time finding great houses, so that's going to push up prices. You also have uh, you have interest rates low, and now we're, tar- we're starting to talk about three Fed cuts. Uh, now, that's going to continue uh, to support housing. Um, and where you see the tightness in the markets is in labor shortages. And quite frankly, you know, builders are having a hard time getting materials uh, now. Now, that's really what's what, what's the bottleneck in the housing market. So if you are selling houses, this is mm-hmm. great. If you're building houses, however, it's not so great. And, and Karen, I mean, I, I hear what Gina said about the Fed, but I mean, if they cut rates, so what? I mean, the bond market's already done the work. We're at one three three on the ten year. You mean for mortgage rates? Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't know mortgage no rates. I don't know if they go any lower, even if the Fed cuts to negative twenty. Yeah, I, I mean that the ballast is, you know, that rates are here. Employment has never been higher. And even you have a little added benefit of gas prices being low. The consumer hasn't been in this good shape. I think, you know, that that really creates a nice floor for the housing market. I like this space. I like Home Depot. I think, you know, they could see shortages of supplies. But it's not like Home Depot is super cheap now, though. They did have good earnings. You know who's sort is lumber liquidators, Tim. L squared? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 to me, I would go back to Lowe's, who just reported, and they actually missed on same-source sales, and there actually looks like there's a little execution risk. And Karen talks about Home Depot. This has been a relative value trade that you've been on either side of. If, if you picked it, you've actually made money in each direction. You made it for two years in Home Depot. You actually made it significantly in Lowe's into this period. I agree. I think Home Depot, which guided uh, last quarter very conservatively going into this year, I think those numbers are overly conservative. Zero interest rates for homeowners are the gift that keeps on giving, and they go straight to Home Depot. And there's very little competition out there. There's very little Amazon effect. Uh, I do like this company. Bless you. You hear the sneeze. So we, it, on this show, we do say bless you. We say you. bless you. You're you don't say Yeah. Why would I say that? I don't know. I can yeah, you spell it? it? There used to be a saying when I grew up as a little boy, if you can't spell it, don't say it, which really... Limited your vocabulary. Maybe. Maybe. Right. Toll Brothers. Why did I bring it up? Look at the move in Toll Brothers off of earnings. I mean, that just goes to show you valuations sometimes don't matter. However, $35 was a huge level of support. Close to 37 today. I think if you're looking for a trade, toll against 35 is pretty interesting. Oh, man, that is a, a, a chart there, guys. A chart only a mother could love. Pardon nice. me? A chart only oh, a mother Oh, I thought you said something. Love. Love. All right, coming up. Idea. Are these wild market swings giving you indigestion. Stick around because we have got a prescription for the rising volatility that hopefully will put you at ease in a heck of a couple of days. And we're going to show you a live shot of the White House as we go out of break because we are awaiting the president's news conference expected in about 45 minutes. Talk about the coronavirus and it could be wide ranging as well. And of course, that will appear live on our special. Starts Markets in Turmoil, 6 p.m. Eastern live with Tyler Matheson, 
Jim Cramer, Meg Terrell, and many more. Cannot afford to miss that. We're back on more Fast right after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. The so-called fear index, the VIX, spiking in tandem with the market's wild swings. So Mike Cope, we're going to go out to him and talk more about volatility. He is in San Francisco and maybe a way to play some of this vol. Mike. Yeah, so it's interesting. When people talk about the VIX, they're usually thinking just about spot VIX, the VIX index. But actually, there's a series of VIX futures that go out in time. We can take a look at that to get a sense not just of what the market is thinking is going to happen in the next 30 days, but what it's going to be thinking about what's coming up in future months. Here we can see essentially what the VIX futures were looking like back on January 24th. Now, here we are a month later, obviously things have worsened considerably. We can see that on the short end, the implied volatility has risen quite considerably. Those VIX futures are much, much higher. But actually, further out in time, we're not really seeing that. And actually, what some people are doing right now is taking advantage of the fact that this longer dated VIX futures has only gone up just a little bit. If we take a look right now at the April futures, we can see basically the kind of magnitude that we're talking about. Yes, it's higher, but it isn't as high, of course, as the March future or the VIX indexes itself. So one of the trades that we saw today that somebody was taking advantage of the fact that this has only gone up slightly, they were buying the April 2022 call spread. That's basically the options on the April VIX future. They spent 66 cents for that. And you can notice, of course, that 20 is much lower than the level of the spot VIX right now. They're making a bet that the April VIX future could rise. But there is another takeaway we could we could look at this, and that is that right now the VIX futures are saying that, yes, we have a lot of volatility right now, but it may subside as we get to know more. And maybe some of the news that we saw today coming out of China, that their new cases were actually lower than elsewhere in the world, is an indication that the you know, future isn't quite as bad as what we've been dealing with lately. All right, Mike Cope. Mike, thank you very much. And we'll see more of Mike and the gang on Options Action, of course, every Friday night, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, we're going to bring you full team coverage as we await President Trump's news conference on the coronavirus as well. We need more details. Fast Money right after this. All right, welcome back. There's the White House press briefing room. And again, about ah, 40 minutes from now, the president's going to hold a news conference about the coronavirus outbreak and the American response. We're going to bring you live coverage of that. And of course, full team coverage, as always, standing by. We've got Eamon Javers live at the White House. But let us begin with where it all began. That is Eunice Yoon, who is in Beijing with more on exactly what the day is like there. Eunice, all your on-the-ground stuff has just been insightful, a little scary, to be honest. But... Uh, spectacular and we're glad that you're doing all right. Thanks so much, Brian. Well, you know, Chinese health officials will likely be eyeing President Trump's remarks with some trepidation, I would expect, as he as he continues to play down concerns uh, um, of the CDC. And, uh, you know, the background of this is that the Chinese government generally does not like to admit that it's made mistakes. But earlier this week, uh, President Xi made a very rare admission by saying that China had obvious shortcomings in the prevention in the early stages. And that opened the door for other officials here, including uh, the top health authority, to say that one of the, he didn't say mistakes, but uh, one of the ways in which they probably would have done something differently is not to actually treat the coronavirus as sars 
or the flu, which is what he said uh, the Chinese did. And so um, by that, he was saying that one of the lessons that they learned in, here in China is not to underestimate the science or the nature of the, what he described as a sneaky coronavirus. Guys, or Ryan. All right, fine. Eunice, Eunice, thank you. Good to see you as well. All right. Let's head now to Washington, D.C., because Eamon Javers is out the White House waiting on the president. Eamon, any obviously coronavirus, whatever, but anything else that we can expect from the president tonight? Well, they're giving no guidance here at the White House about what the president might say or announce here in just about 45 minutes time, as you as you point out. Uh, One thing the White House has denied today is a report that they're considering appointing a coronavirus czar. They said that's not happening. Meanwhile, later in the afternoon, we did see the U.S. Chamber of Commerce call for the appointment of a coronavirus czar, saying the business community needs uh, some central point of accountability uh, and someone in charge to really drive this effort throughout the whole of government. So an interesting dichotomy there between what the White House wants and what the Chamber of Commerce is saying is good for the business community. Meanwhile, they are saying here at the White House that they expect that that $2.5 billion that they requested for coronavirus response is going to go up. Uh, Ultimately, more is going to need to be spent on all of that. And we're learning, Brian, a little bit more information about the president's anger at the CDC yesterday. After that briefing that we saw yesterday that sort of tanked the markets late in the afternoon, I'm told the president was angry at the briefing and his focus was really on Dr. Nancy Messonnier of the CDC, who suggested that it wasn't a matter of when, but if, uh, not if, but when the coronavirus would hit the United States. The president very frustrated about that. So we'll see what his tone is here tonight, Brian. All right, Eamon, thank you very much. Tim, what do we need to hear from the president tonight about the markets? The president needs to be presidential. This is a time for leadership. This is a time to actually you know, act that there is a proactive and very thorough approach to this and, and certainly a, a, a view that expressing that you know, in, in the United States we will take whatever measures we need to to ensure uh, that we can. The, the issue is it's hard to know what those measures are at this point, but I, I do expect a lot of confidence. All right, Tim, thank you very much. And again, full team coverage of the president's comments, part of our special report tonight, Markets in Turmoil, hosted by Tyler Matheson, Jim Cramer, Meg Terrell. All of our reporters will be standing by to break down every angle of this major global story. And we are back right after this. All right, Tim, kick off final trades. Talked about housing plays, Home Depot, uh, oligopoly, duopoly, whatever you want to say, that's the name. I'm going with Disney. I think this move is overblown, and I think it's going to work out. Karen? I'm looking to buy things, but the one thing I don't want to buy is the HYG, High Yield Index. So I'm short that. There's short coming in. Added to that today. You're short the HYG. Short. Did okay, it's a buyer, it. I'm but not you're a, a buyer. seller. I am a seller. Seller. We pay Our attention, guys. Well, nice you job. mentioned Eagle Eyes before. Nice job by you, you, Jocko. Twitter will get you done. <laughs> Long Twitter? That's what I just Thank said. You. All right, our special report, Markets of Turmoil, with Tyler and Jim and everybody else starts right now. We'll see you tomorrow. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.